Beast Watch News, watching the rising beast of Revelation. The push to redefine anti-Semitism to be even more inclusive of all words and actions continued this week, a situation that is becoming more dangerous for non-Jews than for Jews. Also, I'll have a look at clashes that escalated between the U.S. and Iran this week on a familiar battleground, a U.S. embassy, and what Turkey is up to. Israel and the Arab world may be about to turn Middle East politics upside down. First, the U.S.-Iran-Israel war upsurge. Trump's war in the Middle East continues to escalate at the same time the Jerusalem Mystery Babylon's religious war is escalating. Roughly 750 soldiers with the Army's 82nd Airborne Division are slated to be wheels up soon, headed for Kuwait, with an additional 4,000 American troops expected to deploy later this week. The deployment of additional forces adds to the nearly 14,000 additional American troops that have already deployed to the U.S. Central Command Area of Operations over the last six months to confront Iranian malign behavior. The deployment comes in the wake of five U.S. airstrikes on Sunday that targeted an Iranian-backed militia known as Kataib Hezbollah, a group U.S. officials have blamed for a recent spate of rocket attacks against Iraqi bases housing coalition troops. The airstrike fomented a protest in Baghdad, Iraq, at the U.S. Embassy. Hundreds of supporters and members of Iraq's Kataib Hezbollah militia chanted death to America, breached the outer compound wall of the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, and set it on fire on Tuesday in an attack President Donald Trump blamed on Iran, which he said would pay a high price. Iranian Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei on Wednesday said that U.S. President Donald Trump was powerless to do anything to Iran, which will not hesitate to strike against any who threatens its interests. Khamenei scoffed at remarks Trump made the previous day in which the U.S. leader said he was holding Tehran responsible for the violent assault on the U.S. Embassy in Iraq by pro-Iranian demonstrators who had breached the outer wall of the Baghdad compound and burned the property inside. The siege has now ended, but the U.S. troop deployment continues. And here you see a photo from Fox News showing the damage to the embassy's reception room that was burned by those pro-Iranian militiamen and their supporters in Baghdad, Iraq on Wednesday, January 1st, 2020. The Daily Beast has an interesting take on the situation. If Iran's grand plan in the Middle East is to push the Americans out and squeeze Israel into a corner, the attack on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad on Tuesday looks like a win for that cause. The assault was reminiscent of the attack by jihadis on a U.S. diplomatic compound in Benghazi, Libya in 2012. This time, the ambassador and staff were evacuated successfully, but also this time the enemy is much more of a threat and the strategy much more well-defined.
When the Iranian, the Iranian rather, supported Kataib Hezbollah militia in Iraq attacked the military base in Kirkuk last Friday, it was inviting a military response from the United States that the Iranians knew would inflame the streets for Iraq. And President Donald Trump went for it. Now he is railing against the attack on the embassy and threatening more retaliation against Iran. Trump's attacks on an Iran-backed militia followed the examples set by Israel, another point that Iran intends to exploit. But Israel's objectives and those of the United States have not been the same. On Christmas Day, Israeli Chief of Staff Aviv Kokhavi declared his country will act to keep Iran from getting entrenched in Iraq, acknowledging officially for the first time that Israel has attacked Iranian-backed groups there. Two days after Kokhavi's speech, 32 Iranian-made 107mm rockets slammed into the Iraqi base where U.S. forces were present. One U.S. contractor was killed and several soldiers wounded. Then Washington retaliated with its airstrikes targeting Kataib Hezbollah. The two incidents now bring into view both Israeli and American red lines trying to contain Iran's role in the region. For Israel, the red line has been Iran's effort to transfer precision-guided munitions through Iraq and Syria to Hezbollah in Lebanon and its increasing role in Syria close to Israel's borders. For the Trump administration, the red line has become further Iranian proxy attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq or Syria. Now, both Israel and the U.S. are carrying out airstrikes on Iranian-backed groups in Iraq and Syria. The U.S. and Israel are now inextricably backed into corners with the King of the North, from which they will not be able to extricate themselves. Iran has vowed, once again this week, revenge against the U.S., now let's take a look at Turkey and Libya. Another serious situation continues to unfold between Turkey and Libya. Three days ago, Turkish President Erdogan sent a bill to Parliament requesting to send troops to Libya as the war is unfolding badly there. The move, which comes earlier than expected, marks an acceleration of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's plans. The Libyan government has been fighting an insurgency by forces under General Khalifa Haftar based in eastern Libya, the forces of the warlord, who is backed by Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, and others, including what is to be believed rather to be a force of Russian mercenaries, have been trying to capture the capital city. The Tripoli-based government receives aid from Turkey, Qatar, and Italy. The bill will be debated on Thursday, though it is not clear when the bill will be voted on. It is expected to be passed, as Erdogan's ruling party is thought to have enough support in Parliament to have the motion approved. Well, Turkey and Russia may find themselves rivals in Libya,
because Turkey supports the UN-backed government national accord in Tripoli, while Russia backs General Khalifa Haftar, who controls a good portion of Libya. Turkey says around 2,000 Russian mercenaries are fighting along with the Haftar troops. Turkey's defense minister expressed his hopes to resolve an ongoing disagreement with Russia on Libya through dialogue. Here's a caveat. Russia is trying to create an optional energy hub to the one it already ha relies on, um, that it has relied on before the Obama administration's coup of Ukraine in starting in 2010. Russia's new optional partner is Turkey. Ankara and experts agree that the Turk Stream pipeline, which Russia and Turkey are putting online very soon, is set to transform the buyer-seller nature of Turkish relations, Turkish-Russian relations rather, in a bid to make Turkey a joint provider of gas to the European market. They want to get rid of the Ukraine market. So, Turkey and Russia will inaugurate on January 8th the Turkstream gas pipeline which stretches across the Black Sea from Russia to Turkey and then into Europe. The U.S. administration has opposed the two gas pipelines, saying it would increase Russia's political grip on Europe. U.S. President Donald Trump has said that he would ratify a bill, a move made to denounce Russia. As a bypass to Ukraine's control of gas distribution, the possibility of disruption between the countries over Libya is a concern, but do not fear. Men rarely allow money to be lost fighting wars, and that pipeline is worth a lot of money, just as Israel's gas fields and the pipeline are worth a lot of money and, by the way, worth fighting over. One reason for Iran's attack on Israel will be to wrest control of Tamar and Leviathan from Israel. I'll have more on those fields later on. Turkey may also find itself at odds with the Arab League over Libya's conflict. The Arab League on Tuesday warned against military escalation in Libya and said it would ask the UN chief and other key countries to work to prevent any foreign interference in the North African nation's affairs. The League, in an extraordinary session called by Egypt, voiced its great concern over the situation in Libya, which it said threatens the security of neighboring countries. In a statement, it also condemned any foreign intervention that facilitates the flow of terrorists there. The statement didn't mention Turkey by name, but its president, Erdogan, is seeking a one-year mandate from parliament to send troops to Libya, as I said earlier in this broadcast. And now, steps in Israel to the fray between Turkey and the Arab League with a proposal to form an alliance with the Arabs. The United States is hoping to formalize a relationship between Israel and its surrounding Arab neighbors by convincing the Arab states to sign a non-aggression pact with Israel. 
U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor Victoria Coates met recently with the ambassadors of the UAE, Bahrain, Oman, and Morocco in Washington. She also met with representatives from Israel's foreign ministry to explore the idea. Etan Gilboa, professor and director of the Center for International Communication at Bar-Ilan University in Ramat Gan, said, There are two main obstacles to moving ahead with such relations. The first is public opinion. The second is the Palestinian conflict. While publicly the Persian Gulf states pay lip service to the Palestinians, in reality, these nations are tired of the Palestinians. They blame them for not being forthcoming, not negotiating, evading, criticizing, and making demands, he said. Iran, though, remains the unifying factor between Israel and the Gulf states. From the Israeli and American perspective, the Gulf states are expected to provide significant contributions to the alliance against Iran, as well as any moves that can be made with the Palestinian population. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Sunday retweeted UAE Foreign Minister Abdullah bin Zayed al-Nahan after the Emirati official shared an article by The Spectator magazine which argued that a reformation is taking place in Islam through a redrawing of the political map in the Middle East with the normalization of Sunni Arab states and Israel. The article authored by self-proclaimed reformed Islamist extremist Ed Hussein claims that a new geopolitical order is emerging in the region, namely due to a common perceived threat faced by Sunni Arabs and Israel against the menace of Shiite political Islamism. The Arab-Israeli wars and hostilities are a thing of the past which, according to Hussein, was simply based on an anti-Semitic craze to destroy Israel. I'll have more on anti-Semitism a little later. The now edited subheading to the title previously stated, There's a new peace between Israel and Sunni Islam, before being changed to new maps of the Muslim mind are being drawn and old hatreds are on the run. Be careful, Israel. The redrawing of the Middle East map not, might not end up looking the way you want. Hussein also cites the aftermath of the so-called Arab Spring bringing the Muslim Brotherhood and other Islamist groups at the forefront of Middle Eastern politics, which has now been viewed as a threat to both Islam and Muslims, and is therefore rejected. Israel, Hussein contends, is seen by moderate Arab states as a reliable trade and security partner in comparison to the U.S., which has previously abandoned Arab allies when faced with threats by the Brotherhood or Iran. He said there are enough historical and scriptural narratives of Muslim-Jewish fraternity to form the basis for reproachment. He believes this may bring a decade of peace. He made no reference, however, to the ongoing illegal occupation of Arab territory in Syria, Lebanon, and Palestinian territory in the West Bank, 
or continued attacks on the Gaza Strip in violation of international law. Stay tuned, I'll be right back after these messages. Now we're going to look at anti-Semitism, the struggle for Jewish supremacy. The recent uptick in crimes against the Jews in America are fueling a continual escalation in the use of the word anti-Semitism as propaganda from Jerusalem and Washington. According to Time.com, more Jews were killed in anti-Semitic violence around the world in 2018 than during any other year in decades, according to a report released in May of 2019 by the Cantor Center at Tel Aviv University. According to the Cantor Center report, anti-Semitism is no longer confined to the activity of the far-left, far-right, and radical Islamist triangle, but has become mainstream, seen in public forums, debates, and discussions, and is manifested in all media channels, most notably the social networks. Until recently, with the President Donald Trump signing his executive order, the word anti-Semitism was used mainly to define disagreeable speech toward Jews and the state of Israel. And last week I reported that Jewish leaders now want to prevent speech that leads to anti-Semitism. But this week, Jewish leaders continue to call crimes against Jews that are punishable by law anti-Semitism with a new twist. The Jews now want all anti-Semitism. Words, disagreement with Jerusalem's policies, crimes against Jews, to be treated as terrorism. This new spate of anti-Semitic rhetoric is connecting America to Israel as a daughter is connected to her mother. In America, anti-Semitism has become a special category of crimes now against Jews and the state of Israel. Leading the rhetoric is the White House and members of Trump's own family. Ivanka Trump, the president's Jewish daughter, put a name to the horror of the Monsey, New York attack that happened last week, calling it anti-Semitism. According to former New York State Representative Dove Heikend, in a tweet on December 29th, an attack on one Jew is an attack on all Jews. He further said, Jews in New York are sick and tired of the tweets condemning anti-Semitism. We don't need tweets. We don't need press conferences. We need action, and we need it now, he said. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio asked Heikend what 
uh, for advice rather on handling the skyrocketing of violence against Jews. Heikend responded by saying the mayor must declare a state of emergency, have a round table between black and Jewish leaders. So far the attacks this year have been black against Jew and, and an increase in public presence in Jewish neighborhoods and for Jews to not be afraid to be seen in public. He also called for special anti-Semitism crash courses to educate the public about anti-Semitism, a course which in my estimation would be indoctrination of Americans on allowable speech, curtailing your free speech. Look, we must all denounce this violence, but we must define it according to the word of Yahweh and not the definition given by man. The Monsi stabbings were attempted murder and are punishable by American law. No special category of crime that includes everything from mere speech to every crime that can be committed against Jews is needed. Monica Showalter, writer for American Thinker, blames the despicable Democrats and the press. She says, it's shocking. In every case, the victim was Jewish and the attacker was black. That's politically incorrect to the press and its leftist allies, but it's true. It's similar to how Islamist terror, pay attention to that, was covered up as workplace violence in the past, again in the name of political correctness, but this time the refusal to name the source of the violence is not related to Middle East politics so much as Democrats' coddling of black anti-Semitism within its own ranks. Well, I suspect the nature of black-on-Jew crime is a backlash because Jews have been given this new special category of protection under Trump's EO, while crimes against blacks and within the black community are not afforded any special protection. The black community has suffered much injustice in American courts throughout its history. Special protection for Jews, ranging from from words to crimes punishable as terrorism, is where this could be going. How do I know this? Listen to what former Israeli police chief superintendent Asher Ben-Artzi had to say when he pointed the finger at a wrong definition of anti-Semitism in the world. According to him... Anti-Semitism is a form of terrorism and should be fought as such. Artsy wants to push the definition envelope to make all anti-Semitism, words and actual crimes, punishable as acts of terror. In fact, according to J-Post, the authorities of that Monsi crime are now looking at that case as domestic terrorism fueled by anti-Semitism. This is dangerous. Terrorists are tortured and killed in hidden government buildings in America and in Israel. 
They are held in prison without the chance of making a phone call, seeing a friend or relative, or sometimes not seeing the light of day from solitary confinement cells for long periods of time. I just read a quote by Monica Showalter, the writer for American Thinker, comparing anti-Semitism to Islamic terrorism. Let's consider what is being said and done by American and Jewish leaders and the outcome on all citizens of the U.S. and Israel. Dov Heikend, Ivanka Trump, Monica Showalter, Donald Trump, Benjamin Netanyahu, and others calling for a redefinition of an already bad and dangerous definition need to be stopped. Rather than give Jews special protection, they should get busy changing the broken American prosecution system to prevent people falling through the cracks. Blacks and whites, Hispanics and Asians, none of whom are considered separate nationalities under U.S. laws, as are the Jews now. This push for an all-inclusive definition of this man-made word that applies only to a special class of people will result in the legitimization of the coming Jewish supremacy under mystery Babylon, which is rising fast. Last week, members of the former Koch party in Israel were accepted back into mainstream politics again. Even though that party was banned in Israel because of Rabbi Meir Kahani's Jewish supremacy doctrine and its terrorism platform. These members are now part of the Otsma Yehudit party running in Israel's election. And here's the kicker, friends. Rabbi Kahani Meir, founder of the Koch Party in Israel, was a founder in 1968 of the Anti-Defamation League in America that reports hate crimes. These crimes are now being rolled into the one big ball called anti-Semitism when Jews are involved, but not for any other ethnicity. The ADL reports on all crimes from year to year, but its main interest is in crimes against Jews. Rabbi Kahane Meir's Anti-Defamation League reported in their 2018 annual audit of anti-Semitic incidents recorded a total of 1,879 attacks against Jews and Jewish institutions across the country in 2018, the third highest year on record since ADL started tracking such data in the 1970s. Of the 1,879 incidents in 2018, 1,066 of them were cases of harassment, an increase of 5% from 2018. 17, and 774 were cases of vandalism, a decrease of 19% from 952 incidents in 2017. Clearly, there is a rise in attacks on Jews in 2018. But how many attacks resulted in murder? One. One. In 2018, 
11 Jews were murdered at the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh. Now, let's look at whether murder against Jews is different in number than murders committed against other Americans. And I'm going to show you this graph from Statista.com. And as you're looking at this graph, let me just say that there were a total of 41,325 murders in the U.S. in 2018. Of these was the mass killing of 11 Jews while they worshipped. The fact that their murders were associated with their worship and that it was a mass murder is horrific. However, these kinds of mass murders during worship are not limited to synagogues. They happen in churches, too. Three people were killed, including the assailant, in a shooting at a church in White Settlement, Texas, this past week. According to this article, there has been a noticeable increase in both the number of deadly force incidents in churches and the number of deaths resulting from them. The following table lists the number of recorded incidents in churches between 2008 and 2017 and the total number of non-accidental deaths. According to this chart, there were 1,583 uh, such incidents between 2008 and 2017. I know because I added up those numbers you see there. Um, so the number of incidents, if you will notice, seems to be increasing year over year in churches. So I have this question. Has President Trump made plans to protect Christians the way he is protecting Jews? No other group of people has provided this protection in any country on earth besides the U.S. and Israel. I do not present this information to diminish what is happening to Jews in the U.S. and the rise in overt acts of persecution toward them in the past year. Rather, this is to give us a perspective on how the rise in Jewish persecution is being used to advance an agenda both in Israel and the U.S. There is no statistical reason to elevate crimes against Jews to a level above that of everyone else except for religious reasons. Trump is a convert to Judaism and he has a vested interest in protecting his new Jewish family and in causing the rise of Mystery Babylon. In Mystery Babylon, the most convenient reason to punish non-Jews will be anti-Semitism. The problem with the current and changing definition of anti-Semitism is that it will encompass Jews who don't identify with Israel as well. Haaretz reports that most U.S. Jews don't care about the anti-Semitic violence being perpetrated against the ultra-Orthodox. Over the course of the year, the number of hate crimes committed against Jews in New York City has risen exponentially, nearly doubling from 2018. 
The victims in these cases were almost all Haredi Jews, generally living in Orthodox enclaves in Brooklyn. This epidemic of anti-Semitic crime should have generated a massive response from the organized Jewish world. The latest incidents did prompt statements of outrage and solidarity from liberal and mainstream Jewish groups, yet it is still doubtful whether the welfare of the group that has been singled out in this fashion will maintain the attention of the rest of the Jewish community. The reason for such skepticism is based on two factors, politics and the antagonism that exists between the ultra-Orthodox and the rest of American Jewry. This isn't just about antagonism between the ultra-Orthodox and other Jews. American Jews now feel left out of and do not identify with Israel because the newly established religious state, which happened in July of 2018, is ultra-Orthodox and Orthodox. Most American Jewry feel Israel is no longer for all Jews, according to this article that I posted in Beastwatch News. If you go over there, you can read all the quotes from those news articles. I don't have time to list them here. But this is because of the nation-state bill. Furthermore, the rabbinate is controlled by two chief rabbis who represent Sephardic and Ashkenazic Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jews. The rejection of non-Orthodox Jews is felt throughout the other sects of Judaism. In fact, many Reform, Conservative, and Messianic rabbis in America have been blacklisted for purposes of Jews making Aliyah. Unless the Jews of these sects convert to Orthodox Judaism or change synagogue affiliations, they can't make Aliyah. America has now become the battleground on which the Jewish sects are fighting in their religious war. This isn't just about the war between the House of Judah and the House of Israel. It is also about the internal war between the various Jewish sects. This Haaretz article points to another example of how the Jews are being split because of their religious division. The Jews define lineage according to the mother's ancestry, not the father's. You know, Yahweh always lists the genealogy according to the father's, but not Judaism. And this has become a point of contention for some Jews. This week, Israel's High Court of Justice has asked the state to explain its grounds for discriminating against patrilineal Jews. The request comes in response to a petition submitted by the widow of a patrilineal Jew who was denied the right to immigrate to Israel under the law of return. Over the past two years, at least four non-Jewish widows and widowers of patrilineal Jews, the offspring of Jewish fathers and non-Jewish mothers, were denied the right to move to Israel and receive all the benefits awarded to immigrants. They were told they lost that right once their spouses died. 
By contrast, non-Jewish widows and widowers of matrilineal Jews, the offspring of Jewish mothers and non-Jewish fathers, enjoy this right, whether their spouses are dead or alive, and it has never been called into question. Again, according to Jewish religious law or halakha, only the offspring of Jewish mothers are considered Jewish. And I don't bring this up to analyze this question, but to show how splintered Yahweh's people are. Now let's take a look at how Hanukkah has become a Noahide celebration. Last Saturday night, the seventh light of Hanukkah, at the behest of Rabbi Aharon Stern, a prominent Haredi leader, the Sanhedrin hosted a menorah lighting on Mount Zion for all nations. The gathering was intended to bring together representatives of all of humanity in what is the battle call for the war of the sons of light against the sons of darkness. The gathering included Jews, Noahides, and one Muslim, Muhammad Masad, who this article calls an Arab. He lit the Hanukkah menorah and spoke to the group in Hebrew. He said, We are going to join together to push away war, to push away anyone who incites violence. This land is the land of Abraham. We need to unite to open our hearts. There is one God, the Blessed One in Heaven. We may not believe in other gods. In my holy Koran, he says, it is written that these are the people who crossed the Jordan River into the Holy Land. My holy Koran requires me to live alongside the descendants of David of blessed memory. My Koran requires me to join in the revolt by Yehuda against the Greek heretics who reject God. You know, the Greek heretics, which are the reason for the Hanukkah celebration but who are the Greek heretics today I think you might be as about as surprised as I was when I figured this out I just figured it out this week and it was because of a breaking Israel news article so again who are the Greeks of today well I have wondered about this because of the end times prophecy found in Zechariah 9.13 which says when I have bent Judah for me filled the bowl with Ephraim and raised up your sons O Zion against your sons O Greece and made you as the sword of uh, the sword rather of a mighty man I couldn't imagine how at the end of days Yahweh's people would be fighting Greeks again well it turns out that Zechariah's prophecy points to this headline, the Hellenizing Jews that are arising again uh, today. Now let's read this Breaking Israel news article. 
Here is what Breaking Israel News has to say. On Sunday night, Israeli Defense Minister Naftali Bennett lit the eighth candle of Hanukkah at the Cave of the Patriarchs in Hebron, accompanied by IDF soldiers. And by the way, as I'm reading down this article, oh, here pops up a cruise for gays. A gay cruise ad showing these men hugging each other on the deck of a ship right in the middle of this Breaking Israel News article. You know, Breaking Israel News that purports itself as a harbinger of Jewish righteousness. Well, this is very representative of their righteousness. The article continues... Hebron spokesman Naom Arnon set great significance to the act of uh, Defense Minister Naftali Bennett lighting that eighth candle uh, because there is a direct line from the patriarchs to King David to the Hasmoneans and now to the Minister of Defense of the State of Israel. Who are the sons of Greece in the end of days? The Hasmoneans. It will be the perverted Hasmoneans who will bring the world mystery Babylon by perpetuating all that the Jews learned while captive in Babylon and then later by falling into the hands of Greek Hellenization. Who will fight the newly re-sprouted end times Hasmoneans? Biblical Zionists like, you know, and others who oppose Judaism Zionism. And which son of Greece is specified in this article? None other than Israeli Defense Minister Naftali Bennett. He is the one, this article says, has a direct lineage back to the Hasmoneans through King David to the patriarchs. The Hasmoneans were made famous as rulers in the account of the Maccabees against the Greeks. Ironically, though, the Hasmoneans fell into the culture of the Greeks after fighting them. The epitome of Jewish Hellenization was the ordeal that Jewish men went through to reverse their circumcision so they could appear in public Greek baths without the stigma of the sign of their covenant with Abraham showing. That reminds me of what Yeshua said about denying him in Matthew 10.33. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. But what of denying Abraham, eh? And here's the last item. Breaking Israel News calls the New Year's celebration pagan and anti-Semitic. Not only is there a call to make anti-Semitism equal to acts of terrorism, but now even holidays are becoming anti-Semitic. Only half of that Breaking Israel news statement is correct, though. New Year celebration certainly is pagan, but it is not anti-Semitic. It is anti-Yahweh. He told his people to stay away from what the heathens do. Now, let's change directions and look at what is funding 
the rise of mystery Babylon. Israel's Leviathan field that began operations sending gas to Jordan on Wednesday According to this article out of World Israel News, Israel, for the first time in its history, is an exporter of energy, said Minister of Energy Yuval Steinitz in, on Wednesday morning. It is happening right now in these minutes, and I, for the first time, here announce that at this moment, Israel is becoming a gas exporter to Jordan. Another week, ten days, to Egypt, he said. And Ynet reports that it is worth noting that gas began flowing to Jordan from the offshore Tamar gas field already two years ago. The Israeli government should get around 50% of the revenues from the Leviathan and Tamar gas fields, amounting to between 2 to $3 billion per year. Jordanian citizens and politicians have protested there in Jordan the planned transfer of gas between the two nations by torching electrical equipment of the Israel-Jordan gas line. Also, Jordan's parliament filed an urgent memo requesting that a law be drafted to ban the import of gas from Israel, according to Ashark al-Assad. Dozens of activists held a protest in front of the Jordanian parliament calling for a cancellation of the gas trade deal. And now you know, the religious and political war machines continue to grind. Thank you for listening to the Jerusalem Report on Beast Watch News. Full news coverage with a Hebraic perspective of the headlines fulfilling Bible prophecy. Remember to financially and prayerfully support Beast Watch News for keeping you up to date. Send your donation to Beast Watch News today. It takes money to operate this ministry, and your help is much appreciated. That's it for this Beast Watch News update. This is Kimberly Rogers Brown signing off. Click over to BeastWatchNews.com for full comprehensive coverage of all the headlines fulfilling end of days Bible prophecy.